Lord Jesus, we declare our faith today. Our faith is in you, Lord Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory above. Lord, I pray today, Father, that faith will arise in our hearts. Father, we're saved by our faith in you. But many times, Lord, you want us to take that next step of faith where we trust you for all the areas of our life, all the things that we are facing. So, Lord, help us this morning to trust in you with all of our heart. Help us to lean not on our own understanding. Help us to acknowledge you. Father, in you will direct our path. That's the promise of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And, Lord, let us take that to heart this morning. Let us leave here with a renewed faith, a renewed confidence in the truth of who you are in your word. Holy Spirit, we give this study time to you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you uh, work in people's hearts. Bring some to salvation. Bring some to reassurance of things to come. And minister through your word to the hearts of your people. First in Jesus' awesome, powerful, victorious, wonderful, eternal name, I pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. This morning we will be studying Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Last week, what did we look at? We looked at the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. And that was on the day of Pentecost when God poured out His Spirit on the disciples there in Jerusalem. The church was born, they spoke in tongues, and great revival broke out. And then immediately after this revival, immediately after this revival, this outpouring, this birth of the church, we're given the next best thing. We're given what I believe is the greatest sermon of all time. Peter is going to stand up in front of the Israelites, and they are inquiring about what has happened. And Peter is going to lay the thunder. He is going to preach one of the greatest sermons of all time. Uh, it, it, it says that they were pierced to the heart. Peter's going to preach. You ready for this? 3,000 people are going to get saved. Now, I wonder if they counted or if they estimated. I don't know. I'm just joking. I don't know. But, uh, but 3,000 people came to know Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to know what's in this message. Okay, now, I'm not a pragmatist. I don't believe that we go through steps and processes to achieve outcomes but whatever's in this message I want it to be in my message when I evangelize when I reach out to people when I share the gospel I want to take the principles of this sermon and apply them to my teaching here but also to my everyday evangelism so this is not just for preaching in church this also could be applied to your evangelism in your evangelism of reaching out when you're explaining to someone the gospel when you're explaining to someone who's not saved how do you get saved you can take nuggets of truth from acts chapter 2 and apply it to your evangelism so i hope you're ready this is an amazing uh teaching because it comes directly from the word of god so let's pray father god in heaven thank you lord for your word as we study it now lord help us to see what made this sermon that peter preached so powerful and lord help us take the nuggets of it of the truth from it and use it in our life and our witness for the kingdom in Jesus' mighty name i pray amen amen so the title of my teaching this morning from acts chapter 2 verse 22 through 41 is pierced 
to the heart. Uh, you, what's, you ever heard a really great sermon and it just penetrates your heart and you just want to fall on your face and get re-saved all over again? That's what I felt like when I heard uh, uh, Ray Comfort's Hell's Best Kept Secret 10 or 12 years ago. It was just an amazing sermon. That it just it, it humbled me, it made me thankful for the word of God, and it revived me. What sermons have you heard in the past? What messages, what evangelists do you like that their message just touches your heart? Likely, when you were hearing that teaching, you were hearing that sermon, what it was was the word of God, if they're teaching the word of God as they should be, was piercing your heart. It's amazing. So let's get into it. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you in this sermon is Peter is direct. Look at what the opening words. He says, Men of Israel, Peter is preaching to Jews in Jerusalem. And he addresses them specifically. And he grabs their attention. He grabs their attention with the next word, next phrase. Listen to these words, verse 22. In other words, I need you guys to pay close attention, is what he's telling them on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to explain to you what's happening in this outpouring, but I'm going to lead you to this outpouring. So he, he grabs their attention. He isolates them so that they are focused on what he is saying. And friends and family, if we want to be effective in our evangelism, in our preaching, we must speak with the same conviction and compassion. We preach the word because we know it is true. We know it has authority. We know it has power. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two double-edged sword and with that conviction we preach it with compassion please listen to what I have to say we we have a heart of love we have a heart of compassion in our witness and in our teaching and I believe that's what Peter has here uh he says uh Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God miracles um which God performed through him in your midst that's very important. Peter's audience that he's preaching to had likely witnessed the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Many in this crowd that Peter was, was preaching to on the day of Pentecost were likely there before Pontius Pilate in the courtyards shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They were the very ones that were condemning him to death. And now God... Now, now, Peter, God, through Peter, is preaching to them and is evangelizing them, bringing them the message of grace. Verse 23, verse 23 is a really wonderful verse. It says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, did anybody see anything in there? Anybody see the, the paradox in this verse? There's a huge paradox in verse 23. Here we have the paradox of God's sovereignty and man's free will. And even in putting Jesus to death there at Calvary, Israel was fulfilling 
God's will. You have God's sovereignty and man's free will, his responsibility, all in the same verse. A common question I get is, at Calvary Chapel, are y'all Calvinist or are you Arminian? And to my answer, we are, Calvary Chapel's answer is, we are neither. We are neither Calvinist nor Arminian. We firmly adhere and hold to the sovereignty of God. We hold it with all of our hearts, and we hold on to man's free will. And we avoid any theological system that tries to separate the two. Why? Because you see both in the Bible. You, you want to you debate it, talk about it, and, and discuss it? Welcome to the club. It's been talked about for 2,000 years. I love talking about God's sovereignty. I also like talking about man's free will. But we see that right here in this one verse. But the thing that grabs me the most when I see that um, delivered over by the predetermined plan of foreknowledge of God, in other words, God uh, planned this before the foundation of the world, is that this is the greatest evidence of God's love towards you. This is the greatest evidence of God's love towards us, that he loved us before we loved him. He loved us before we loved him. God knew that you and I would rebel. God knew that you and I would come into this world and we would sin against him. Yet, in his attribute, his eternal attribute of love, God planned before the creation of the world that Jesus would come into this world and save your soul by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he not masterful? Is he not almighty, omnipotent, eternal, sovereign, uh, providential? He, knew, he knows everything that we need in life, but he's given us, and he's given us everything that we need in life, but he's given us the greatest thing, which is salvation in Christ, and he planned it before the foundation of the world. The cross was not plan B. It wasn't like, oh, they crucified my son. Got to go to plan B. No, this verse right here contradicts that statement. It was God's eternal plan. So the first element, if you're taking notes, of a message that pierces the heart is do not gloss over the cross when you witness. Don't just say it real quickly and pass, pass by in your conversation of your witness. Explain the cross in great detail. Explain how God sent his son to the cross to be a sin offering, to be crushed under the weight of God's judgment. Talk about propitiation. You know, don't shy away from big theological words. Jesus died on the cross. God poured out on him the wrath that was coming to you and me. God, Jesus took the wrath that was coming to us, and we get Jesus' perfect righteousness. He suffered greatly at the cross, humiliated, crushed, by sinful man and by the Father. It was God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross. It was because of our sin that Jesus went to the cross. And it was God's sovereignty and God's love and God's providence that says, I'm going to take care of that issue. I've got a plan. My son's going to come and he's going to save the world. And it's beautiful and it's glorious. And notice in verse 23, he says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Don't be afraid to talk about sin. Don't be afraid to talk about sin in your evangelism and in your witness and in your preaching. If people don't understand that they, the bad news of being a sinner, they will not accept or embrace the good news of the gospel. 
Unless there's bad news, the good news is not good news. And good news requires bad news. Bad news requires good news. So we talk about sin. We don't do it in a, con- a condemning fashion or, or browbeating people over the head. But we just simply explain to them, man, you ever lied? That's a violation of the ninth commandment. You ever stole anything? That's a violation of the eighth commandment. You ever dishonored your mom and dad? That's a violation of the fifth commandment. You ever had sex outside of marriage? You ever had sexual immoral thoughts in your brain? That's a violation of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. We just simply explain it in truth and compassion, and then we give them the good news of the gospel. But here, he's not shying away from talking about sin. Look at verse 24. It says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. I pull my second element out of verse 24 of a message that pierces the heart. A message that pierces the heart of our listeners is not only going to stress the death of Jesus on the cross, but it's going to stress the resurrection. He rose from the grave. Hallelujah. He defeated death. He did what no other founder of any religion did. You can go to uh, Muhammad's grave. You can, you can go to all the major founders of the world religions. You can go to their gravesite and see where they're buried. But you can't do that with Jesus because he rose from the grave. Not only did Jesus die, but the Father raised him from the dead. And the resurrection is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It sealed the work on the cross. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it sealed the work at Calvary. The resurrection was God's stamp, God's approval, that the sacrifice that Jesus made at the cross was completely uh, and 100% complete for our salvation. The resurrection seals the fact that one day, whether they believe in him or not, every single human being will stand before him on judgment day. Every person will stand before him. And the resurrection, my favorite, it crushes the fear of death. Back at verse 24, he says, but God raised him up again. Look at it putting an end to the agony of death. I do not believe what he's talking about here. I don't think he's talking about the physical process of dying. When Peter makes this statement, putting an end to the agony of death, I think what he's saying is, through Jesus' resurrection, the fear of death is removed. The fear of death is removed. Friends and family, if you're born again and you're trusting in Christ, man, death is just a little bump in the road. A little boop as you pass from this life into eternity and you step into God's presence, there's no fear. What's the, the worst thing the world can do to us is kill us. And guess what? We win because we go into Jesus' presence. The fear of death is gone. Now, I know it's a little weird to think about and it can be a little scary. I, I'm with you. I'm not looking forward to it. I want to live a long life. But I do know when my day comes, When your day comes, there'll be no fear because the Lord Jesus Christ is waiting on the other side to say, welcome in to my kingdom. He's he's put an end to the agony of death, verse 24. Now, as we move into verse 25, Peter is going to, I, I, I say, masterfully appeal to the authority of the Jewish minds with, you ready for this? The words of David. He's speaking to the Jewish crowd. So what he does, 
He appeals to somebody that they believe and trust, and he appeals to the authority of Scripture by quoting the person that they love most, which was King David. Look at verse 25. For David said of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope. Uh, because Verse 27. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your, your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Okay, now what's going on here? What David wrote in Psalm, this is actually, this is Psalm 16. What David wrote in Psalm 16, the Jews thought David was talking about himself. David's on the throne in Jerusalem. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And David makes this statement in Psalm 16. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And what Peter is saying here in the book of Acts is David was not talking about himself. David was not talking about himself. This prophecy that David spoke was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to Jesus. Peter's point, and Peter likely, as he's saying this, points these men of Israel in the direction that says, Go look. David is in his tomb. David is buried here in Jerusalem. And because King David did die, this prophecy of Psalm 16 cannot refer to him. But it refers to Jesus. And that's the thought that he goes into with verse 30 and verse 31. Look at that. What I just said, now, considering what I just said, look at verse 30 and 31. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants, one of his descendants on the throne, he, talking about David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. King David, back in the glory days of, of, of Israel, he sat on his throne in Jerusalem, prophetically looking forward to Messiah. Looking forward to the one, according to Psalm 16, who would conquer death by his resurrection. And not only did David look forward to Jesus, but all the prophets in the Old Testament, all of them, looked forward to the future Messiah. Listen to what Peter would go on to write later in his epistle. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The law of the Old Testament prepared the heart. It prepared the people for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians, the law was a schoolmaster 
to bring the people to Christ. They were under the law, but they couldn't keep the law. None of them could keep the law. And the law was put in place to point them to the future Messiah. They, you, you could put together the entire, all the gospel accounts of all the things that happened. You could put them all together, piece them from the Old Testament scriptures. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. And look what he says in verse 32. Notice he says, this Jesus. He puts the word this on the front of it. This Jesus. What Jesus, when you say, when he, could, he, he wouldn't normally just say Jesus or God, but he says this Jesus. What Jesus is he talking about? He's talking about the Jesus that was foretold in the Old Testament that is now manifested in the flesh. This Jesus, the prophesied one, the Messiah, God raised up again, verse 32, to which we are all witnesses. Verse 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. The third element of a message that pierces the heart and for us to be effective in our evangelism. Ourselves, we don't proclaim our church. We proclaim Jesus. Jesus is the name above all names. Jesus is the name that saves. We proclaim him exalted, and we tell people, if you will give your life to him, he will pour out his spirit in your heart. Verse 33, first part of the verse says, exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the from the Father, the promise of the what? The Holy Spirit. He is poured forth into our hearts. You see, friends and family, when we trust in Jesus at salvation, he pours his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And he fills you up. And check this out. He's there to stay. Because the scripture says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And also, throughout the journey of life, we need revival. We need fresh encounters with God. We need renewal. We need repentance. And the Holy Spirit does that in our life as we move forward in life. There are times of refreshing where the Holy Spirit pours himself out on us again and again and again to revive us and to keep us going down the straight and narrow path. My prayer and my hope is that the Holy Spirit pour, is just poured out on Calvary Chapel, Irma, and all the churches in the area that are preaching the gospel, that God, that the Lord Jesus Christ will pour out his spirit on all believers and let's stay strong in the faith. Um, I believe we're at verse 34. Verse 34 says, for it was not David who ascended into heaven. Do you see where I'm going with this? He, he's taking the people um, from their authoritative point, which was the scriptures, in King, in King David, they trusted in David. They believed in David. They believed the words of David. They believed the words of Abraham. They believed the words of the Old Testament prophets. But he said in verse 34, it was not David who ascended into heaven. It was not David who fulfilled prophecy. David's tomb is over there. And he's like, look, over there. You can go to Jerusalem today. You can go to Columbia Airport. You can fly into Jerusalem. And you can go visit the monument and the encased housing of where King David is buried, okay? And that's the point he's making to them. But notice verse 34. 
This is really cool. This is what we call inter-Trinitarian conversation. Wait, 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 Pastor David. It's cold. It's a little cold in here, by the way. But, uh, but what are you talking about, inter-Trinitarian conversation? Let's read it, and then I'll, I'll explain it. But he himself says, the second half, verse 34, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Friends and family, this is inter-Trinitarian conversation. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. And I would venture to say these may be the words that the Father spoke to Jesus as he ascended to his right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who's seated at the right hand of the Father? Jesus. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. One day he will bring all enemies, all things, into complete submission under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father has given the kingdom, has given the authority, has given the power, has given the, the, the power to pour out the Holy Spirit. He's given it on his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 36, Therefore, he, uses, he puts that word therefore in there. In other words, he, uh, Peter has laid out his evidence to the people of Israel. You know, he didn't just expect them to just accept his word. Well, just take my word and believe it. No. Peter appealed to the authority of Scripture and the word of God. And he says, therefore, in light of what I've just presented to you from the Old Testament Scriptures, from what King David said, and from that tomb that's a mile and a half away, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I can't help but to think that there were Jewish rabbis, men of Israel, who knew the scriptures, who knew the Hebrew. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait a minute. Isaiah did say he would be crushed. Genesis chapter 3 does say he will crush the head of the serpent, that he will be crucified. And I could, I could just see the, the picture coming into their mind. They were convinced this message was piercing their heart. And he says, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord is curios. It means master, one who has all dominion. The Lord Jesus Christ that y'all crucified, that y'all nailed to the cross. He is the one that formed you in the womb. He is the one that has all authority. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And then Christ, Christos, it means uh, the anointed Messiah. He is the one that was promised in the scriptures to be Lord and Savior. And, and by the way, this is how we confess Christ. We confess Jesus is Lord. We confess Jesus is Christ. And we confess that Jesus is our Savior. So he's bringing them in. He, he, he's bringing them in. Look at verse 37. He says, Now when they heard this, when they heard a crystal clear gospel presentation that Jesus, that they're a sinner, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, he died on the cross, even King David says he rose from the grave. David prophesied it in Psalm 16. Now when they heard all that, what does it say? 
they were what? Verse 37. They were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. This is what happens when there is spirit-filled preaching, when there is spirit-filled evangelism. Hearts and lives are touched. People are ministered to when they see our conviction and when they see our compassion. Eyes are open, sinners are saved, and people are set free. I like what, I think it was Charles Spurgeon said one time. He says, we don't dress up the gospel. We don't make it all fancy. We just, we just open the cage and we let the lion out. We just proclaim God's truth. We preach Christ. If the message of Christ won't save them, nothing else will. Now, we can add some anecdotes and some illustrations, and, and I love all those things, but the heart of our message is sharing that with them Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead, and that's what they do here. And look at verse 37. We're actually going to read the end of verse 37 and all of verse 38. And Peter and the, excuse me, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing he says there is to repent. Repent, metanoia, it means a change of mind. It means turning from your sin and turning to Jesus. So in the situation of all these Israelites, turn from your unbelief and put your faith in Yeshua, Messiah, the one crucified and one risen. And notice, I want to address one other thing too. In verse 38, he says, uh, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Whoa, that don't sound right. Are you, are, what, what, is he saying that, that water baptism, is he saying that water baptism forgives sin? And the answer is no, that's not what he's saying. The Jews that heard Peter's words knew exactly what Peter was talking about when these words were spoken Water baptism was a common practice in ancient Israel. John the Baptist, the intertestamental period, he was uh, baptizing people. In the Old Testament, here's what I believe what he's getting to. In the Old Testament, if a Gentile came into Israel and said, I want to serve the true God, they would go through a ceremonial baptism by which they were leaving behind their pagan gods in their immorality, in their old way of life. In this water baptism, they were consecrating their life to God. It was not the act of water baptism that saved them, but it was the process of their faith and their obedience and their dedication to the one true God. And the application for us today is this, friend. When you come to Christ... You leave the world behind. Okay? Let me repeat that. When you come to Christ, you leave the sinful things of the world behind. You say, Pastor David, how can I leave them behind? Through getting saved, through discipleship, through accountability, through uh, going to church, being in fellowship. Next Sunday's message is likely going to be titled, 
why do I need a church? And we're going to see next week the benefits of being a part of a local body. But we're called to leave behind lying. After you become a Christian, you stop lying. After you become a Christian, you stop stealing. After you become a Christian, you flee and run from sexual immorality. After you become a Christian, you endeavor uh, to live a life of integrity, to live a life above reproach, to live holy, to live dedicated. And God has given us a gift that enables us to live holy. And who is he? The Holy Spirit. Think about that next time you're, you're, you're pondering the Holy Spirit, you know, the third person of the Trinity. Think about his name, Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of the Lord dwelling on the inside of us that makes us holy, that sets us apart. So it's beautiful. Verse 39, he says, for the promise for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call to himself. This way of life, the Christian life, was not only for them in the first century, but it's for you and I today to be followers of Christ, to be filled with his Holy Spirit, to, to live in obedience to him, and to live our lives to honor and glorify Christ and to go through a what he's talking about the, the baptism part here of consecrating our life and saying Lord I'm cutting ties with the world I've, I've struggled or I've compromised or I've done things I shouldn't have done I'm, you're saying God I'm breaking out the spiritual scissors and I'm and by the power of your Holy Spirit I'm going to leave behind the things of this world and I'm going to live my life completely dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. Same commitment, uh, just, we're just 2,000 years later. Verse 40 says, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The perverse generation is another name for the uh, ungodly culture. There was an ungodly culture then. There was an ungodly culture today. This culture says, was saying to them, and the culture says to us today, to live like you want. Do what pleases you. And that is not biblical. Christians are called to be holy. Okay? We repent of all sin, and we place God first. We're not perfect but we're moving forward in our walk. And by the grace of God, uh, through hardships and struggles and difficulties and trials and tribulations, we're gaining victory in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ um, through discipleship. Uh, we place God first. A perverse generation is a generation that is humanistic and sinful and does not honor Jesus Christ or his word. We live in a humanistic world today, a world that is void of the word of God. And the word of God should be at the center of our lives. The word of God dictates our life, our theology, our family, our practice, 
It's, it's at the center of everything that we do. This is the word that revives us and transforms us. King David said in Psalm chapter 19, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect in converting the soul. This is everything we need. The world rejects it. We love it. We love it. And we cherish it because it's precious to us. If you open your heart and mind to the world, the world will fill your life with lies, unbelief, and sin. But if you open your heart and mind to Jesus, he will fill you with truth and the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I want the truth. I want more of the Spirit in my life. I don't want to be deceived. I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. And I want to know the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Paul says, for nothing can be done against the truth, but only for the truth. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You know, again, we follow Jesus. We follow the word of God because Jesus is the truth and the word is the truth. And as followers of Christ, we, we leave behind this perverse generation and we pursue God with all of our hearts. The standard, the plumb line is the word of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. See, we're, we're ignorant before we come to Christ. We're, we're, we're ignorant. In other words, we're not very smart. It's not a very smart thing to live without Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a very dangerous world. It's a very perilous world. And it's, it's, it's ignorance. But like the one holy one who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. He says they're all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That word holy, it means to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be dedicated. And, 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 and again, I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Holiness is not based on appearance, okay? I know a lot of people, they look really holy on the outside, but that, don't, don't throw rocks at me, that's not holiness. That is not holiness. Your outer appearance, whether you wear earrings or makeup or shorts or pants or skirts, or that stuff is not holiness, that stuff is not holy. Holiness is when you commit your life to telling the truth and being honest and living a life of integrity and, and, and being holy, be, following in the footsteps of Christ. It's about the inner man on the inside that, that God wants our holiness. He wants us to speak the truth in love. He wants to, us to abstain from sexual immorality. He wants us to live pure and holy lives on the inside. That's what it means when he says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And look at verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Do you see the key in verse 41 for this revival, for this piercing of the heart? The first half of verse 41 says, they received his word. One of the things that we need to understand if we want our hearts pierced 
and we want the Holy Spirit to change our life is when we're studying the Bible in Bible study or you're studying the word at home in your study during your morning prayer time or you're hearing the word being preached on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights is this, open your heart. Open your heart to the truths of Scripture. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit will pierce your heart. And, and, the, and they were added about 3,000 souls. I like how Luke, I like how Luke adds that word about. You know, I was talking about what I said a while ago. I wonder if they counted. That'd be a lot of counting. Oh, I messed up at 2,346. Let's start over. No, no. Uh, he says about 3,000 souls came to Christ that day. The gospel that Peter preached brought deep conviction. It brought deep conviction of sin, of who Jesus and who Jesus truly is. It preached both sides of the message, which is repentance, turn from the world, and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we got to take our, in our evangelistic endeavors, in our gospel presentation, you know, we got to be careful not to promote or push a life enhancement gospel. That life enhancement gospel is, man, come to Jesus, he'll make your life better. Now, will he make your life better? Yes. Will he get your life in order? Yes. But that's not the primary reason we come to Christ. We come to Christ for salvation, to be saved, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to have eternal life. And then once you get your eternal matters in place, once you're firmly grounded and rooted in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will begin the process of sanctification where he just starts working in your life. He starts working on your marriage. He starts working on uh, your attitude. He starts working on job employments and, and blessing you with uh, wealth and abundance to, to take care of your family and to take care of things like He cares about every detail of your life. But the thing that we've got to remember in our gospel presentation is before we get to those things, we've got to get the heart right. Amen? So the hammer of righteousness fell on 3,000, and they were pierced to the heart. And my hope and prayer today is that um, you go home, you study the word, you get into Bible study, and you pray before every study, before every devotion, and you say, Lord, change my heart. Pierce my heart. You know, um, if you're struggling with a sin, if you're struggling in an area of your life, pray about it. Say, God, I am struggling in this area of my life. I cannot seem to get this under control. Pray about it. Confess it as sin. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And then dive in to the word of God. And let the heart-piercing message of the gospel and the truth of scripture change your life amen amen let's pray father god in heaven thank you lord for your word thank you for the study this morning father we um we're just amazed of the truth and the nuggets that we can pull out of your word as we study it 
Father, I pray for all of us, Lord, that you will empower our evangelistic endeavors, our evangelism encounters, our witness, our preaching, our teaching, that you will empower it with your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word. Lord, help us to um, help our message pierce people's hearts with truth, with love, with grace, and with deep conviction. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And Father, help our hearts to be pliable to the Holy Spirit, to be tilled up, to be turned, to be revived. Help us, Lord, to be changed, not by eloquent speech, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Change our hearts and orient our hearts towards you. I ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, for myself and for all my brothers and sisters this morning. Change our hearts and help us to go out and change other hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. First, in Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.